Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister from Sir John E. MacDonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts you can enjoy. Canadian History X, and Pucks and Cups, which release every single week on all podcast platforms. You may notice that my voice sounds a bit different in this episode, and that's because I'm recording with a different microphone as I'm currently staying in a hotel. Following the four Prime Ministers who served from 1891 to 1896, a new Prime Minister would come to the scene. He would serve for the next 15 years, becoming a massive figure in Canadian history. That person was Sir Wilfrid Laurier. Born in Canada East on November 20, 1841, Laurier was the seventh generation of his family in Canada, and the family was heavily interested in politics, often having political discussions at the table and debates amongst each other. His father, Corliss Laurier, was well respected in the community and had served as the mayor, justice of the peace, militia lieutenant, and local surveyor. According to some sources, one of his ancestors came to New France in the mid-17th century, where the ancestor, Francois Caterneau, took up farming, beginning a long line of Lauriers in what would one day be Canada. Laurier was born into a family that would have an interest in politics and liberalism, and his father would say to him when he was young, quote, Always be humble, and never believe that you are better than others. The proverb states that there is no great devil that does not have a master. On September 5, 1847, Laurier would begin his elementary schooling. Only six months later, on March 7, 1848, his mother would sadly die from tuberculosis, which impacted the young Laurier heavily. His father would soon remove him from school, and he would be sent to a new school in New Glasgow, a nearby village where many immigrants from Scotland lived. While living there until he was 13, he absorbed the language, mentality, and culture of the British people. He would learn to speak English there with a slight Scottish accent. He was a good student, winning prizes in 7 of 11 subjects, and he had a passion for politics which was already growing. Despite his teacher's denouncing of liberalism though, he would sometimes skip classes to hear Partey Rouge speakers speak about politics in town. Jesuit priest Joseph Grenier would describe Laurier in grammar class during Laurier's term as Prime Minister stating, quote, During grammar class, Laurier would discuss politics like a seasoned politician, and was already a liberal partisan. He addressed every question and read everything that he could get his hands on, newspapers and books on doctrinal liberalism condemned by the church. In September of 1861, Laurier would enroll at McGill College, a decision that would lead him to his future wife, Zoe Lafontaine. The couple would meet when Laurier was a boarder at the home of Dr. Seraphine Garthier during his time at McGill, where LaFontaine was also boarding. At the time, she was a piano teacher of modest means. While at McGill, 
Laurie began to notice that he was having coughing fits, which sometimes involved coughing up blood. Since his mother had died of tuberculosis, he was terrified that he too had it. Sometimes confined to bed, he would fall into a depression during the worst of the condition. Eventually, he found out he had chronic bronchitis, something that would stay with him for the rest of his life. While at McGill, Laurier would make his first public speech when he was mandated to give the valedictory address at the, at the McGill Law Convocation of 1864. In his speech, he would say, quote, Freedom is not the power to say or do whatever you like. Freedom is the right to act and move with ease at liberty within the circle of the Constitution traced by the people. In 1864, he graduated with a degree from McGill University near the top of his class. As a young man who was slim, six feet tall, and took meticulous care of his wavy hair, he cut something of a dashing figure for the time. Laurier would open his first law office in Montreal, which closed within a month. A second law office was started, and it closed within three months. By March 1865, Laurier was broke, but he would soon form a partnership with Marsh Lachon that saved him from poverty. He would then move to Arthabasca, Quebec in 1866, where he ran the local newspaper. As a liberal in Lower Canada, he was opposed to confederation because he felt that the federal government would have too much power and that the influence of the French Canadians would be severely overwhelmed by the English. In Arthabasca, he would also develop a deep love for the community where he would remain until 1897. While living there, he would serve as an alderman, mayor, and county warden, while also looking after the affairs of the parish. In 1876, he would have a home built there at the cost of $3,000, and during Christmas celebrations for the rest of his life, he would often return to the community he loved. On March 13, 1868, Laurier would marry Zoe. Laurier had decided not to ask for her hand in marriage because of his health, but when he found out she was about to receive a proposal from another man, he decided to propose. The couple would have no children, but Zoe would be heavily involved in various organizations through her life, including the National Council of Women and as the Honorary Vice President of the Victorian Order of Nurses. According to most sources, Laurier regretted never having children with Zoe. While a couple would have a happy marriage, that didn't stop Laurier from seeking companionship elsewhere, as I will get into. With his practice in Arthabasca, which would operate for 30 years through four different law partners, Laurier usually focused on general law and didn't deal with any famous cases. His law practice did not make him wealthy, and often money was tight until he found his way into politics, something he often complained about. In fact, financial security would not truly come his way until he was elected as Prime Minister in 1896, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. In 1867, the Liberal Party in Quebec began to pursue Laurier, and he would tell his wife on August 1st, 1867, quote, I am actively involved in election work. Now they want me to be a candidate, and I will not refuse. I might as well work for myself as for others. In the end, Laurier chose not to run in the September election. Laurier would eventually arrive in the Quebec legislature for the first time in 1871, serving for the Drummond-Arthabasca region. In that election, his first, he won by 750 votes. Prior to this, he was known for his radical liberalism and his ties to the Parti Rouge, but by the time he reached the legislature, he was more of a moderate. By this point, 
Five years into Confederation, he also began to accept it and decided to work within the system. He had campaigned heavily in the election, using his fiery spirit and network of friends. And for the next three years, Laurier mostly kept to himself in the legislature, spending his time listening, learning, and conforming to the new life of a legislator. He was not known to raise his voice often in the legislature, but sometimes he would. One example of this was on November 22, 1871, when he spoke out against the practice of politicians serving in both the legislature and the House of Commons at the same time. He would say, quote, With the single mandate, Quebec is Quebec. With the double mandate, it is no more than an appendage of Ottawa. That speech would gain him notice, but his time in provincial politics would be short. In 1874, he would resign his provincial seat, and he would be elected to the House of Commons under the government of Alexander Mackenzie, beginning a 45-year stretch in Parliament. Upon his election, Liberal Party workers in his riding took him from parish to parish in a long parade. His youth and skill with speaking were also seen by Alexander Mackenzie. It was around this time while married to Zoe that Laurier began a relationship with Emilie Barthay, who was married to Laurier's law partner. Emilie had a passion for politics and literature, which attracted Laurier, and there are rumours that he fathered a son with her, Armand Lavrienne, who would serve in the House of Commons as both a Conservative and a Liberal. It was never proven, but if you look at a picture of both Laurier and Armand at the same age, they share very similar features. During his first term in Parliament, he took the same approach as he used in the legislature, choosing to learn what he could and speaking out only occasionally. One issue is the speaking in defense of Louis Riel and against his expulsion from the House of Commons. He did not feel sympathy for Riel at the time, as he would later say, but he wanted to use the issue to weaken the Conservatives further. He would state that the Red River rebels, quote, wanted to be treated like British subjects and not bartered away like common cattle. His speech was praised by the English-Canadian press, and they saw it as calm and logical. In October of 1877, after giving a speech in Quebec City in defense of political liberalism, he was appointed the Minister of Inland Revenue. This made Laurier the most prominent liberal in Quebec, and the future seemed bright, and many saw him as a possible future leader of the Liberal Party. In the 1877 election, Laurier would actually lose his bid for re-election in his riding, so he ran in Quebec East and was re-elected thanks to a better organized liberal group around him, and he continued in his minister role. Unfortunately, Sir John A. Macdonald would come roaring back on the scene amid a second stretch as Prime Minister. Now, at the age of 36, he was a regular MP in the House of Commons, from a province that mostly voted Conservative. The years from 1878 to 1884 would be tough ones politically, and Laurier would begin to lose interest in politics. One reason for this was his subordinate role to Liberal leader Edward Blake. John Defoe, a journalist, would write about that role, stating, quote, Laurier's political activities consisted chiefly of being an acting secretary of sorts to the Liberal leader. He kept his references in order, handed him hansards and blue books in turn, summoned the pages to clear the impedimenta and to keep the glass of water replenished. There were memories in the house of Laurier's eloquence, but memories only. That would all change in 1885 following the Northwest Rebellion. Laurier would push for clemency, making a moving plea for it in the House of Commons. Laurier, while not condoning the actions of Riel, charged the government with mishandling the rebellion in general. 
Laurier's plea for clemency fell on deaf ears, though, but after the hanging of Louis Riel, Laurier rose in prominence for defending the cause of the Métis leader, who many in Quebec felt was just trying to preserve the Francophone culture, while also calling for the need to unite French and English in Canada. It also helped that Laurier appeared as a man of principle and high ideals. On November 22, 1885, six days after the hanging of Riel, Laurier would speak to a crowd of 50,000 stating, quote, If I had been on the banks of the Saskatchewan when the rebellion broke out, I would have taken up arms myself against the government. Riel's execution was judicial murder. How could have M. Chapleau been a party to this cold-blooded murder of a compatriot? In 1886, he would again bring up the issue of Riel, stating, quote, Rebellion is always an evil. It is always an offense against the law of a nation. It is not always a moral crime. What is hateful is not the rebellion, but the disposition which induces the rebellion. What is hateful are not the rebels, but the men who, having the enjoyment of power, do not discharge the duties of power. In the 1887 election, Laurier was now a prominent member within the Liberal Party, and he directed the campaign in Quebec. On June 2, 1887, Blake, after losing yet another election, chose to have Laurier succeed him as the leader of the Liberal Party. Many eminent Liberals were against this as they felt that Laurier was too physically weak to be an effective leader due to his chronic bronchitis. They also feared that having Laurier as leader would result in many in Ontario not voting for the Liberals because of his support of Riel. Even the Catholic clergy in Quebec saw Laurier as a radical. Laurier would actually refuse to become leader, writing his friend and saying, quote, I do not want to be leader. That is not my aspiration. But there remain two objections. I am not a wealthy man, and my health is poor. My friends are imposing too heavy a burden on me. Blake did not give up, seeing Laurier as the only person who could lead the party. Finally, on June 18, 1887, he accepted the promotion to leader of the party, but stated that he would only do so until Blake was healthier. In the end, Laurier would remain leader longer than anyone else in Canadian history until his death in 1919. As leader, he would devote himself to building up the Liberal Party again. He did this in two phases. The first was from 1887 to 1891, when he advocated a policy of positive actions with the United States, but this was seen as anti-British, and it would cost Liberal votes outside of Quebec. From 1891 to 1896, he began the second phase of building a national Liberal Party, while the Conservatives were falling apart following the death of Sir John A. Macdonald. This included participating in 200 to 300 meetings between 1895 and 1896 alone, and reaching out personally to 200,000 voters. In a book published in the late 1880s, the following is said of Laurier, quote, he was a silver-tongued orator and a man of solid political and diplomatic reputation. He was the most picturesque figure in all Canadian political history. In 1896, as a new election was approaching, the Manitoba schools question was becoming a serious issue in Parliament, and had caused the Cabinet revolt against Prime Minister Mackenzie Bowell. With Charles Tupper now Prime Minister, an election was called and Laurier made sure to avoid a definite stand on the issue of Manitoba schools. Laurier would say regarding religious freedom during the 1896 election, quote, So long as I have a seat in this house, so long as I occupy the position I do, 
whenever it shall become my duty to take a stand upon any question whatever, that stand I will take, not from the point of view of Roman Catholicism, not from the point of view of a Protestant, but from the point of view which can appeal to the conscience of all men, irrespective of their particular faith, upon grounds which can be occupied by all men who love justice, freedom, and toleration. In the election, despite a strong campaign by Tupper, Laurier had the support of powerful premiers in Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia, as well as in Quebec. He would begin attacking the Conservatives on all fronts, without giving a position on the Manitoba schools question. He would also begin using the expression, sunny ways, as a way to speak about his desire for compromise. He took this from the fable, The Wind and the Sun, serving as a metaphor for the issue in Ottawa. In the fable, the wind and the sun argue about who could take off a traveler's coat, and it is the warm waves of the sun that succeeds, not the force of the wind. Thanks to this stance and the collapse of the Conservative Party, Laurier and the Liberals achieved an election victory, and on June 23, 1896, Laurier became the seventh Prime Minister of Canada and the first Francophone Prime Minister in Canadian history. As the new Prime Minister, Laurier began to focus on the development of Canada and the implementation of policies that would heal the wounds of the country to push for unity. In 1896, he signed an agreement regarding the Manitoba schools question. The new agreement meant that Manitoba would not have separate schools like it did in 1890, but religious instruction during the last half hour of the day was allowed, with instruction in a language other than English. In addition, one Roman Catholic teacher had to be hired if the parents of 40 children in urban areas or 25 in rural areas demanded it. In schools, where there were 10 children who spoke a language other than English, they would receive instruction in English and their mother tongue. It was not an ideal solution, but it put an end to the Manitoba schools question. Many did see it as the optimal solution because it left both French and English mostly satisfied. The Catholic Church in Quebec was very unhappy about it, but the issue of schools in Manitoba would never again return to Parliament. Laurier would become known for finding compromises and issues, something he did when dealing with the United Kingdom. As Prime Minister, he would implement an immigration system with Clifford Sifton that put preference on the immigration of people from the British Isles to Canada. Due to the immigration policies put forward by the Laurier government, one million people moved into Manitoba and the Western Territories during his 15 years as Prime Minister. With Sifton, immigration would be completely reorganized and the department would be centralized in Ottawa. The population of Canada increased 40% during the time Laurier was Prime Minister. In 1897, he would travel to London to be knighted and to participate in the first colonial conference. Laurier did not actually want to be knighted, in the tradition of Alexander Mackenzie, but as he was traveling to England for the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria and preparations had already been made for his knighthood, he felt it would be rude if he did not accept. Laurier had a strong desire for Canada to be independent from England, and he would resist the British Empire in their efforts towards the federation of the empire in political, economic, and military terms. Again, he would find a compromise. He would state in 1897 while in England, quote, If a day were ever to come when England was in danger, let the bugle sound, and though we might not be able to do much, whatever we can do shall be done by the colonies to help her. With the Klondike Gold Rush bringing in huge amounts of American prospectors in 1897, 
there was a need to ensure Canada controlled the Yukon region. The Laurier government would enact the Yukon Territory Act, separating the Yukon from the Northwest Territories in 1898. In 1899, he agreed to defray the cost of transportation of Canadians who wished to fight for England in the South African War, also known as the Boer War. On the two sides of the issue were those who wanted to be loyal to the British Empire and those who saw that Canada was not being threatened in the war. He made the decision to arm and send 1,000 volunteers to South Africa without convening Parliament. In the agreement to send troops, he told England that the troops were their responsibility when they arrived, and in no way was this to be seen as a precedent for the future. Despite this compromise, many in French Canada were unhappy about any participation, and one of his MPs, Henri Barossa, would resign his seat. Even with that opposition, Laurier would win in the 1900 election and took Quebec with 57 of 65 seats. Regardless of his policies and compromises, Laurier was immensely popular in Quebec. With this second victory, Laurier would take a more forceful approach in governing the country, and he would direct the policies of the country, pushing aside anyone who went against him. In 1902, he was at the Colonial Conference in London, and again opposed all proposals to unify the empire. On August 9, 1902, he was at the coronation of King George VII, and he would say, quote, The British Empire is composed of a galaxy of free nations all owing the same allegiance to the same sovereign, but all owing paramount allegiance to their respective peoples. Around this same time, he traveled to France and negotiated a trade agreement with the French government. It was not that Laurier was against the British, in fact, he was a staunch supporter of Canada's association with the British Empire, but he was also a nationalist who believed that Canada's destiny was as an autonomous country within the British Empire. He would state in his very famous quote, The 20th century belongs to Canada. Although that quote is misleading, his exact quote, which he said on January 18, 1904, was, Canada has been modest in its history, although its history, in my estimation, is only commencing. It is commencing in this century. The 19th century was the century of the United States. I think we can claim that Canada will fill the 20th century. When he returned from Europe, Laurier was exhausted and his health was poor enough he began to worry that he had cancer and even considered resigning. It took a trip to Florida and his health slowly returned. Also in 1902, Laurier would have an eye to the future when he signed an agreement with Marconi, the inventor of the wireless communication system that used Morse code to construct a transatlantic communications facility and the tools for communication for lighthouses and sailing stations to communicate. Two years later, he would sign a contract with the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of Canada to operate a network of radio telegraphy stations known today as marine band radios creating the first network of wireless radio transmission systems in the world. In 1904, there were six stations, and by 1915, there were 21. In 1903, the Alaska boundary discussions with the United States would begin. Canada wanted an all-Canadian route from the Klondike goldfields to the Pacific, currently blocked by U.S. territory on the Alaska Panhandle, that the United States claimed as its own. A six-person tribunal was created, with Canada getting two votes, the United States getting three, and Britain getting one. In the end, Britain ruled in favor of the United States hoping to avert military conflict. 
The incident greatly irritated Laurier, who saw Canada lacking the power to make its own international decisions. Laurier would then turn his attention towards a new project, constructing a second transcontinental railway. The new railway would build a section from Winnipeg westward, along with a line running from Moncton and Quebec City to Winnipeg. As part of this, he allowed the Canadian Northern Railway to build a third transcontinental railway. All of these new railways would come at a public expense and put a heavy financial burden on Canadians. But Laurier was sure of his ambition as Prime Minister. That year, when the election came along, Laurier once again received a huge majority. In 1905, Laurier would see two new provinces arrive in Canada with the creation of Alberta and Saskatchewan. With the creation of these provinces, Laurier again had to deal with the issue of the educational rights of the Catholic minority. He would again go with one uniform school system rather than separate schools for minorities. While English Canada was happy with this, French Canada was unhappy over it, and the prestige of Laurier began to fade in Quebec. While it would take almost a decade, it was at this point that Laurier and the Liberals would see a slow fall in the province. In 1905, Laurier would say about how he lived his political and personal life, quote, The guiding thought of my life has been the harmony between the diverse elements of our country. I cannot be certain that I have succeeded as much as I would have hoped, but the thought is true, and one day it will prevail. By the latter part of the 1900s, Laurier had built the Liberal Party a strong base in Quebec, but he did see significant opposition from the strong Roman Catholic Church in the province. A common slogan repeated to parishioners by Catholic priests was, Heaven is blue, hell is red. In 1908, his election majority was reduced, but he once again had a majority. At this point, Laurier would focus on two tasks as Prime Minister. The first task was the Naval Service Act, passed in 1910 that established the Canadian Navy, consisting of five cruisers and six destroyers, which would allow the country to fight with England anywhere in the world. This decision, amazingly, made no one happy. In English Canada, it was felt that this navy was insufficient, and in French Canada, it was seen as too excessive. In Quebec, this new navy would cost him considerable support. Also in 1908, the Laurier government would enact the Continuous Passage Act, which required all immigrants coming to Canada to do so from their point of origin without any stops. While this may seem like a minor issue coming from Europe, it created a huge barrier for those immigrants coming from Asia. In India, where the citizens were British subjects, it made it nearly impossible to immigrate to Canada. After the 1908 election campaign, Laurier was exhausted and ill, and again thought of resigning, but he was persuaded to stay in power. On December 25, 1909, he would confide to a friend's wife, quote, I carry my advancing years lightly, but I no longer have the same zest for battle. I undertake today from a sense of duty because I must, what used to be the joy of strife. He would go back to work, and in 1909 he helped with the creation of the Conservation Commission. On June 2, 1909, he would appoint a new Minister of Labour named William Lyon Mackenzie King, helping to raise the profile of a future Prime Minister. One story from this time that may or may not be true relates to when Laurier went to Saskatoon on July 29, 1910, to attend the opening of the University of Saskatchewan. It was there he apparently bought a newspaper from a young John Diefenbaker. Later in life, Diefenbaker would say that he shared his ideas for the country with Laurier, 
and that Laureate told him he would be a great man someday. This part, if the meeting happened, is likely embellished. In 1910, during his tour of the prairies that included going to Saskatoon, Laurier met with numerous rural delegations who were sponsored in an organized farmer movement. They were looking for lower tariffs and free trade with the United States. With the volume of people he spoke to, he decided to make that a platform of the Liberal Party, which brings us to his next task as leader. This second task was establishing free trade with the United States in 1911. This policy would focus on natural products and some manufactured products. Many Canadian industrialists were against this, and the Conservative Party of Robert Borden latched onto this by claiming the Liberals were disloyal to England and of leading the country to a fractured relationship with the British. His push for free trade with the United States would be the undoing of his time as Prime Minister, as it would turn out. In August of 1911, Laurier approved an order in council that was recommended by Frank Oliver, the Minister of the Interior. It was approved by Cabinet on August 12, 1911. The order had the expressed purpose of keeping black Americans out of Canada who were escaping segregation in the American South. In the order, it states, quote, The Negro race is deemed unsuitable to the climate and requirements of Canada. The order was never called upon, though, as immigration officials had already reduced the number of black Americans coming into Canada, and it was cancelled on October 5, 1911. Soon after, in 1911, Laurier would call an election, and this would lead to his defeat, rather than victory. As a leader of the opposition, he was still an energetic leader of the Liberal Party. He would push against the Conservatives over issues related to the cost of living among Canadians, and he would rebuild the Liberal Party somewhat. He would lead a filibuster against the Conservatives' own naval bill that would have sent contributions directly to the British Navy. This bill was later blocked in the Senate. He would fight against the $35 million offered to England to help strengthen its navy and against the financial assistance given to the Canadian Northern Railway. In 1916, he would defend the rights of the Francophones in Ontario for bilingual instruction in school, once again raising his popularity in French Canada. When the First World War erupted in 1914, Laurier supported Canada's participation, and he proposed a political truce with the Conservatives, as well as a voluntary enrollment in the army. He would support Prime Minister Borden in the House of Commons, and even participated in recruiting meetings to help the war effort. But in 1917, with the issue of military conscription severely dividing Canada between French and English lines, Laurier turned to compromise once again. Instead of supporting conscription, he proposed a referendum and the continued use of voluntary enlistment. This compromise would fail due to the bitter resentment over it among English Canadians. Laurier would say, quote, All my life I have fought coercion. All my life I have promoted union, and the inspiration that led me to that course shall be my guide at all times, so long as there is breath left in my body. In the 1917 election, Laurier would see the Liberals crushed, having only 82 seats to Borden's 153. In Quebec, due to the conscription issue, his party only took 20 seats and 34% of the vote. As an idol of the French-Canadian population and a villain in English Canada over his efforts for compromise, he became a symbol of the division between the two groups in Canada. At the same time, the government formed a union party and several Liberals left the party to join this new party that was created between the Conservatives and other parties. On November 11, 1918, 
the First World War ended, and Laurier began an effort to restructure the Liberal Party and rebuild unity within Canada. Sadly, he would never finish his efforts as he passed away on February 17, 1919. He had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and paralysis the day before, saying to his wife, quote, This is the end. Upon his death, 50,000 people jammed the streets of Ottawa as his funeral procession marched to the final resting place at the Notre Dame Cemetery. His tomb features a stone sarcophagus adorned by the sculptures of nine mourning female figures that represent the provinces in Canada at the time. His wife Zoe would pass away in 1921 and was placed in the same tomb. The funeral procession of Laurier was one of the first public events in Canadian history to be captured on film. You knew Sir Wilfrid Laurier well. I knew him very well. I sat in the gallery seven years when he was sitting in the house, and I heard him make some of his most memorable speeches. What was he like? Ah, uh, uh, well, I always remember a phrase Dr. Johnson said of Burke once, that if you took refuge with him in a doorway from a shower of rain, you'd know you were in the presence of a great man. And that was true of Laurier. He, he had an almost majestic presence. And he had the... The great gift of inspiring not only a reverence but a passionate devotion from his followers. This doesn't exist any longer. I mean, he was in the mold of the chieftain. So was Sir John A. And uh, we've lost that mold now. We haven't got people like that. Perhaps intellectually as great, but uh, they just don't look as great. Sir Wilfred looked as if he stepped out of some great old oil painting. The white plumes and the beautiful classic features. And he dressed perfectly. He used to wear a, a red tie. And, and, and during Lent, he would change this to a purple tie. He changed with the seasons and the, and the white top hat. Just to see him was, a, was a, an experience. While he had passed away, his work to strengthen the Liberal Party would see it become the dominant force of the 20th century in federal politics. During his time in the House of Commons, Laurier set many records. Not only the first Francophone Prime Minister, he is tied with Sir John A. Macdonald for the most consecutive federal elections won with four. His 15-year tenure also remains the longest unbroken term of office among Prime Ministers. His 45 years within the House of Commons remains a record, and at 31 years and 8 months he is the longest-serving leader of a major political party in Canadian history. With William Lyon Mackenzie King, he holds the distinction of serving during the reigns of three Canadian monarchs. Overall, he is the fourth longest-serving Prime Minister of Canada, behind only King, Macdonald, and Pierre Trudeau. Through his electoral history, from 1874 to 1917, Laurier rarely received less than 50% of the vote in an election for a riding, often either being acclaimed or taking upwards of 70-80% to 80 of the vote, showing his popularity. In his last election, he actually received 92% of the vote in his riding. As Henri Barossa, a long-term rival, would say, quote, The private virtues of this eminent statesman, his admirable qualities of the heart, that tireless, modest charity, the great dignity of his life, are reasons for trust and consolation of those who loved him. Laurier is honoured heavily throughout Canada. The Sir Wilfrid Laurier National Historic Site honours his birthplace, while Laurier House National Historic Site honours his residence in Ottawa. The Wilfrid Laurier House National Historic Site also honours where he worked as a lawyer while serving in Parliament. Three postage stamps were also created to honour him, 
and the highest peak in the premier range of mountains in British Columbia is named Mount Sir Wilfrid Laurier. Several schools, roads, parks, and buildings are also named for him as an electoral district in Quebec. On November 1, 1973, Waterloo Lutheran University was renamed the Wilfrid Laurier University. In Quebec, his surname has become a first name, and he holds a place as a charismatic hero whose term in office was considered a prosperous time for Canada and Quebec. In 1999, when Maclean's magazine began to rank the first 20 prime ministers in Canadian history, Laurier finished third. In 2011, when a new historic ranking was completed, he finished first. And when it came time for the creators of the video game Civilization to create a playable Canadian civilization, the person they chose to be the leader of that playable civilization was Sir Wilfrid Laurier. I hope you enjoyed this episode and our look at Sir Wilfrid Laurier. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. And I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Lori Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. As well, you can find me on Facebook. Just search for Canadian History X. Remember, that's E-H-X. I'm on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G, B-A-I-R-D. And don't forget, you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, Britannica, the Parliament of Canada, Wikipedia, Saskatchewan, A History, The Charm of Ottawa, Historica, Canada, The National Film Board, and Wilfrid Laurier 175.ca. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.